Mayor Lightfoot unveils her proposed 2021 city budget. And Emily Drake and Todd Connor, who write the Chicago Comes Back Leadership Insights column for Cranes, say now's the time for bold moves, with the disruption caused by the pandemic also giving leaders an opportunity to make changes like addressing gender equity, equal pay, and equal opportunity. I think speed of action and with an eye towards the long term um, is going to be really important. If we're talking about bold moves and you're like, well, I've, I've never run a meeting like that or I've never told people, you know, what I'm afraid of or the issues that I care about. It's like, well, guess what? It's all on the table now. So give it a shot and see what happens. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, October 21st. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm joined by Emily Drake and Todd Connor. They write the Chicago Comes Back column. It's insights for strategic leadership during this, I think we can all agree, kind of weird year, right? And they say that right now is the time for bold moves. And by bold moves, of course, they mean things like resetting equal pay and gender equity and things like that in your organization. So they're here to talk about that and to preview the column that's coming up tomorrow. Welcome, guys. How are you? Good, Amy. Tell me about why this is a moment for for big, bold moves, because it seems like a lot of people, or at least for a while, we're just kind of in the manage through it, get through this, figure out the new and desired normal. But now maybe we're in a little bit different place. Yeah, I I have had, I think, no less than three people in the past week, and they all happen to be women. And, you know, we focused a lot last week on um, the national jobs report, and it's disproportionate, this pandemic's disproportionate sort of effect on women. The three people that reached out to me in the last week were women, and they were like, I'm going to start a business. And I was like, yep, now's, now's the time. And I, I don't know if I can like psychologically even explain like why now's the time other than it's uh, it's been in my experience so far a time where we are looking in the mirror more, we're reflecting more, where a lot is on the table that never used to be when it comes to leadership conversations. We sort of moved around and danced around issues or delayed issues uh, like racism, like equity, um, like politics. Um, which we're going to talk about next week, and I know we'll get to later. So when it comes to boldness, now feels like the time because there's just this incubator for it where um, anything goes in a way. And I think if you're really doing your deep work and you're really thinking like, you know, we can enact new policies, we can think about how we onboard, we can think about how we develop people in a completely new way because we have a whole new way of working and interacting with each other. And so from that place, you know, entrepreneurs, of course, are getting all excited. But I think large corporations are also thinking about, like, do we still need that? It's a time to edit and be bold. Yeah, a time to edit. I like that very much. Todd, what would you add to that? Well, you know, 
in a period of disruption, which we've talked a lot about, which we are amidst, uh, both in terms of the economic devastation being felt, as well as sort of a reconciliation and understanding, or, or for some, a newfound awareness, for others, not a newfound awareness at all, but of racial injustice and of, you know, kind of structural exclusion. Um, there's an acknowledgement that we don't want to build, um, we're not trying to build back to what was. Uh, and so the question becomes, what, what's it going to be? And that's a question that we have to answer as a society. It's also a question that we have to answer as, as, as individual people. And so, you know, uh, I guess I'll, I'll quote our former mayor who said, never let a crisis go to waste. And uh, we're in a crisis, you know, where, where what we thought was certain, both good and bad, uh, is sort of being raised as a, as, a, as a question in so many different areas today. And so I think as we think about what's the future of industry going to look like, as we think about what's the future of our company going to look like, as we think about what's the future of our civil society going to look like, um, and then frankly, this question of what's the future for our, ourselves personally going to look like, we can answer those questions. And I think speed of action in some cases is going to determine um, the answer. You know, So to the extent that people are listening now and saying, look, I like working from home. Um, I'm not sure I want to go back to the office. I'm not sure I want to go back full time, you know, to, to have a bold point of view, which is, look, I want to come back and, and work 50% of the time. I want it to look like this. I want to make a, a real significant contribution, but I want it to maybe be over here. Those are the kinds of opinions that when a lot of people are kind of bracing for the, the new normal to be defined, some are going to choose to take action. And I really think it's those that choose to take action that are going to define what the future looks like for themselves personally, but also for the companies which, with which they work and the, the communities in, in the country within which they live. And, and as you were kind of listing off those things that those epiphanies one could be having right now, you, you kind of spoke to both the worker and the leader having sort of a, a moment of reconciliation of what is it I really want and what does my workday need to look like, which speaks to a point I think you guys emphasize a lot about the need for really transparent conversation in the workplace. Transparency as well as values, you know, and anchoring against our values. I think it's sort of, you know, it's like a family system, right? It's easy to sort of things be fine when there's no pressure test against it, but it's like the minute something hard happens, that's really where we find out what is, what does this organization stand for? What does this leader stand for? What do I as a, as a person stand for? When my family's under incredible pressure, what is it that makes us a functioning family system? What is it that threatens us? So, you know, as a country, frankly, like we're going through this challenge where, you know, the polarization has never been greater. People have a fatigue with the news, hopefully not this news. Let's consider this something more aspirational. Um, but people are fatigued. Um, they have post-election stress disorder, which we're going to be talking about in, in this week's column. So there's a lot of kind of pressure on us and, and, and uh, kind of a tumultuous time for a lot of us and for organizations. But that's actually where clarity emerges where we're able to say, ah, aha, in fact, my marriage is stronger than I realized because it's been tested. You know, this organization with which I work, they really showed up in ways that, that you know, were caring and generous and, um, and honest. And so, you know, I'm, I have a newfound, you know, recommitment to this place that I work. Or, you know, the opposite can be true too, right? Where, which is they fell short. I saw who they were. So, you know, I think for all of us and for leaders in particular, it's a, you know, it's like standing up and being really clear, here's here's what I believe. And that's changing. You know, some of us are having to sort of shed old identities 
and embrace new ones because of the situation in which we live. And I think, you know, you can view that as threatening or you can view that as growth. But I think um, there's a there's sort of a newfound level of honesty that I think is beginning to emerge. And, and that's where a place of you know bold decision making can happen. Okay, so let's talk about that bold decision-making and the practical steps. I think there's probably a lot of inner work to get there before you start doing the outward work. Emily, where does a leader begin? Yeah, well, Amy, you said it best, and you know it's my favorite drumbeat of doing the inner work. But at some point, right, Todd talked about, you know, acting. I, I think we can only think our way so far into, you know, sort of the solution or to having deeper relationships and, and building trust on our teams so at some point you have to have the conversations. And I've been thinking a lot about um, feedback and giving and receiving feedback, which I think when we first got into the pandemic, there was this like rapid increase in like communication and like we're getting connected and we're staying in touch. Um, so I've, I've seen that sort of peter out at organizations. And I think what we're gonna hopefully experience as we get into the rhythm of November and all that it entails is hopefully an increase in that again. So yes, do the internal work. Whenever we talk about having crucial conversations or having bold conversations, we're really, um, Melody Hobson was saying just a couple of weeks ago in, in a session that we were facilitating, that preparation is really what allows her to feel confident. And I think preparation is so key. So, okay, you prepare. You're asking yourself, you know, do I need to have this conversation? You're thinking about what is my intention with this conversation? And then you have it. And I would love for people, Todd and I talk about this a lot, to not just think about, you know, a conversation happening in isolation. That's what makes it so high pressure, right? But instead, it's like the first of several things that you'll probably talk about, be about within an organization or within um, a relationship. And so really thinking about lengthening the time horizon, we've gotten, we were just talking before this, like the four walls, like things have gotten really sort of compact in a lot of ways as we're experiencing all this existential stuff. So do your preparation and make the first step. Engage and think of it truly as a dialogue, something that you have to communicate, but also you're going to be doing a fair amount of listening. And guess what? It's going to be, there's going to be another one and another one and another one. So I think um, even just thinking about the time horizon a little differently is helpful as a leader. And back to Todd's point about values, having your own sort of personal review system one of the things that we're thinking a lot about too is the performance review process and like, how do you do that this year? And how is that different? Um, and really thinking about like, how did it go? So I love when leaders are like reflecting and thinking about what did I learn in that conversation and what can I sort of take with it as a lesson? And then comes even more practical steps beyond, okay, I'm going to lengthen that time horizon. I'm going to have that conversation, but it's not going to be like the town hall of the quarter and we don't talk again. We're going to keep talking and keep doing. Beyond that, what other steps should leaders be taking to, to bring big change pretty quickly into their workplaces? Well, I think, you know, Emily touched on this idea of the time horizon. I think that's that's a really important point. You know, what 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 this period has done to us is it's kind of upended what we thought were was the plan, right? And so we had ideas as to what the next 5, 10, 20 years was going to look like. I think everyone is in in a lot of ways clean sheet, you know, looking at what they think the plan is going to be. I mean, we don't know, right? So this has sort of upended our ability to do that planning. And what I think the opportunity for leaders is is to say, you know, like take a longer view, you know, if we're making decisions about what the next six months looks like, well, that's really different than if we think about what the next five, 10 years is going to look like. 
I think if you're operating in an industry or at a company where you know that something isn't um, working, you aggressively, you know, jump to the solution. I think you have a chance to leapfrog into creating the kind of organization that's going to meet the needs for the marketplace of the future. And I think companies that are in that aggressive kind of bias towards action, bias towards thinking of what's the next five, 10 years going to look like and how do we build accordingly towards that. Um, and, and frankly, skip maybe some of the incrementalism that would have otherwise been part of like a traditional change management process, right? So if, if the traditional change management process was, well, let's socialize this over the series of kind of a quarterly kind of set of conversations or executive messaging, you know, I think the new paradigm is being able to stand up now, honestly, and say, look, here's where I think the ball is headed. And I think our organization has to pivot and get there quickly because our speed of action is going to really determine whether or not we can be viable. So, you know, as we're, as we're watching sort of um, big tech get dragged before Capitol Hill, you know, in some ways, this is a this is sort of a crisis that's showed up quickly. But in a lot of ways, this is a crisis that's been sort of growing. You know, I mean, this questions of, you know, monopoly status and, and is that true or the, or the question of misinformation? You know, we had kind of low grade indicators that these could be issues for the last, you know, decade plus. And um, but absent a crisis, we maybe don't see the need to react to it as quickly as as we needed to. Right. And so I think that parallel plays out for a lot of companies, for a lot of industries and frankly, for a lot of individuals. You know, if if working as much as you did didn't quite feel right, well, now you have an opportunity to address it. Right. So I think it's just holding with honesty. Here's what is not working. Here's what's not going well. And or here's what the opportunity is and, and aggressively building towards that for, for the future. I think that's a really good point that you made about the urgency. There's things that I think a lot of people know, hey, we got to deal with this at some point. But if it's not in a crisis moment, it's easy to kind of like, eh, it's fine. Everything's going fine. The P&L looks OK. We're good. We don't have to do, do anything about it right now. And that's a really important parallel, I think, to draw with what's happening right now with Google on Capitol Hill. Well, and I'll say this and give it maybe to Emily, but, you know, and I think the same holds true. And this is what we wrote about in the column of gender equity, you know, that gender equity isn't a new issue. I mean, the sort of the pay disparities and, and, and how women are, you know, not participating in the C-suite to the extent that they um, need to be and ought to be. Um, so these issues have been there. And so the question becomes, well, why aren't we in a better place around having dealt with it? And, and that's a long conversation. But the point is, like, we're here now and we have the opportunity, given the crisis, to say, look, let's really do the radical things. And my view is it's those that take the radical actions today that really not just are laggards in the industry or play catch up or get to where the industry ought to be, but actually define that. I think it's those companies that choose to be in a leadership role, define the future that are going to really, um, you know, be around in 10, 20 years. Emily, I'd love your thoughts. You've been a leader on this topic. Well, I was thinking two things. One is, um, the importance of envisioning. So if we're thinking about practical steps for leaders, you know, doing the internal work uh, to codify your values, to clarify sort of, you know, what your intention is, and then having conversations with people that feel sticky and maybe even feel like something you wouldn't normally do. If we're talking about bold moves and you're like, well, I've, I've never run a meeting like that, or I've never told people, you know, what I'm afraid of or the issues that I care about. It's like, well, guess what? It's all on the table now. So give it a shot and see what happens. You know, there's this, uh, there's just this, this tolerance, I think, uh, and maybe even some grace for failure. 
So if you do that internal reflection and then you go external with it, you know, part of the thing that you can do from that place of trust is envision and just to think about like, what does an organization that I'm a part of, what will it look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years? Do I want, you know, 50% of the people around the table to be women? Do I understand the unique contributions that women make? Do I understand that women step away sometimes and need to come back? Am I making that process really easy for them? Um, and if I can, am I outsourcing that? So just to accommodate the realities of things. Um, and, you know, women's core competency, one of them, um, and this is obviously traditional gender, traditional roles, is compassion and carrying, by the way, the brunt within an organization of things like, hey, can you organize this social thing? Can you bring us together? We are the natural gatherers. So Priya Parker talks a lot about this and has a wonderful book about it, about how, you know, the load that women carry, and this has been like, since forever has a lot to do with emotional and mental health. And that is a core focus right now. So when we think about human resources, which is generally speaking, where a lot of women find themselves climbing within an organization too, you know, as we had Michelle Hay on many weeks ago, chief HR officer, that function has a spotlight on it for sure. Um, but there's a reason that, you know, that competency tends to has like feminine leadership qualities to it because there is a lot of compassion and listening in and amongst strategy. They coexist. These are not disparate things. Um, and so the stakes are raised, right, to do the reflection, have the conversation, and then make the bold move and do something different. And if you fail, like COVID time, we have a lot more grace. What is failure anyway? Like we're all just figuring out because there's no rule book now. It's a perfect time. I'm so glad you brought up uh, Priya Parker. I could, I feel like we could have a whole other hour just talking about her work right there. Let's do it. I know. Let's do it. So pause everybody. No. Okay. So I want to shift though and make sure we talk about the column that is coming up this week. What will you be sharing with us? So this week uh, we're talking politics with a small P, not a capital P. We are acknowledging that, you know, hey, look, there's an election that's coming. How do, how do leaders, and, and we're thinking particularly in terms of the workplace leaders, how do you acknowledge the election without introducing politics into the workplace? And do you have to? And you know, I, part of what the research uh, suggests is that um, that politics hangs over us like a gloomy cloud on a lot of days. Interestingly, those that are more engaged in politics have less anxiety about politics than those that are less engaged with politics have about anxiety. So there's almost a disproportionate relationship. And so it is a real consideration that people are coming to work with. It is affecting their mental health. Uh, it is affecting their um, ability to focus. It is affecting uh, their, their lives in, in, in many respects. And so the question is, you know, for companies who historically have said, look, we don't want to be political places, how do you find that through line of acknowledging that there is this cataclysmic event that could affect the industry and, and will affect employees and, and will affect their own mental health, but is also, um, but we're also trying to kind of keep the workplace focused on, on the work at hand. And so the column is about finding that balance. And I think for us, a lot of it is acknowledging and, and ideally in advance that, hey, this is a big event, but then normalizing, you know, how we're going to come and work, you know, in subsequent days. Um, I think the wrong time to have the conversation is after the election, when you realize tempers have flared and you realize that kind of employees don't have a mechanism to have like productive conversations with each other. So we think that conversations in advance of the election, which is why we're putting the column out now, normalizing a set of behaviors, 
allowing employees not to have political conversations, which is to say, here's who I'm for or which candidates, but to really have a conversation of what does it look like for us as a workplace to operate at a high level while acknowledging sort of the, you know, the political context that maybe hangs in the background, right? So we think that just that conversation is important um, because we know that it's gonna be present for people beyond things like giving employees the day off of work to go vote or work at the polls or do their civic duty, or maybe, and we're seeing this with some workplaces, take the next day off where you might need a data process, um, whatever the outcome uh, may be. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, these things that we've been ignoring and the compartmentalization of leadership, work, life, we just very fundamentally don't have anymore. Um, and it, it's physically visible in all of our settings if we have the privilege, you know, to be working from home or sheltering in place. And so I guess what I'm hoping for is that every leader makes a 1% move to be uncomfortable or experience discomfort and dive into some transparency around we are being affected, we are affected, and we will be affected by things we care about. And we might care about different things, but there's some core things that are true for all of us. And I'm going to speak it, and I'm going to also create a space for you maybe to talk about it. And this is when I say, you know, the taboo stuff, like the things we never talked about, like salary, diversity, I mean, around the edges, right? But a lot of people weren't willing to dive in we got to get used to this stuff because it's a marathon. And, you know, when I think about all of these issues that have surfaced in 2020, they're not God willing going to go away. We're going to continue to talk about them and work on them. So like normalizing the discomfort of, yeah, we're going to talk about like pay differences and we're going to talk about racism at work and, and even right politics, not being something that's sort of tucked away. I'm just not a fan of anything being tucked away for the sake of decorum, um, but understanding that it's not like, we'll just pull it all out of the closet that it, but it is like a 1% sort of willingness to tolerate the, the discomfort of the vulnerability of the, I care about this stuff and I'm having a reaction to it. And by the way, I love working here because I get to be my whole self. You know, we all win, I think, doing that 1%. Here, here. Well, thank you both. I appreciate you both being with us today. And of course, thank you to Wintrust, our sponsor, and to Tim Simpson, who produced this live stream from our Detroit office. Coming up, a record drop in airfare prices due to the pandemic shows just how far airlines have to climb. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com SBL. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Mayor Lori Lightfoot unveiled her proposed 2021 city budget, the centerpiece of which is a section of the $12.8 billion spending plan that includes higher taxes on real estate, nearly $94 million, according to the city. Also included, over $106 million in spending cuts on personnel, including around 300 layoffs, plus a combination of unpaid furlough days and not filling vacant positions. According to the city, the property tax hike will cost the owner of the average $250,000 home an extra extra $56 a year. Lightfoot says the tax on homes in the city is still lower than on any in the suburbs. 
but didn't mention that taxes on commercial property in the city are often higher than their suburban counterparts. Also in budget documents, the city said property tax freezes are no longer policy. From now on, the city will include an annual inflation adjuster. Drivers will pay an additional three cents a gallon for gas, and the city's tax on cloud computing services will rise one and three quarter percent to nine percent. But perhaps the biggest item in closing what Lightfoot said is a $1.2 billion hole in the budget is refinancing city debt with $1.7 billion to be saved, providing $400 million in budget relief this year and $501 million for the proposed 2021 budget. Refinancing city debt will not only save money by exchanging old debt for lower interest new debt, but it'll also lengthen the term in which the city will repay the debt, as far in the future as 2050, in fact. And such deferment will help the city's cash flow, but also drive up costs in the future, as city budget documents indicate that debt service costs will rise above the previous level in every year from 2023 to 2050. The Lightfoot administration says the move is justified by the pandemic, saying the city is booking one-time revenue to make up for one-time costs. Lightfoot also pointed to the largest surplus ever in the city's tax increment financing system, whose revenues have surged in recent years. The city will book $76 million of the $304 million surplus, with most of the rest going to Chicago Public Schools. The city attributes about two-thirds of the budget hole to the pandemic, and indeed city projections show revenues from existing taxes declining across the board. Nonetheless, the budget includes a modest increase in funding for anti-violence efforts to $16.5 million, up from around $11 million a year, more than had been spent, but far less than certain aldermen and police reform groups wanted. But it should also be said that introducing the budget is only the first step in a rather lengthy process. And legally, it doesn't have to be approved until the last day of December, which means that should Washington send COVID relief funds, some of the bigger cuts and tax hikes in the budget could be switched out with federal funding. Indoor drinking and dining at restaurants and bars will be off limits again in much of suburban Chicago, possibly for weeks, under an order issued this week by Governor J.B. Pritzker. With COVID-19 numbers spiking amid an apparent new wave of the pandemic, Governor Pritzker mandated the partial shutdown for establishments in Region 7, which is Will and Kankakee counties, and Region 8, DuPage and Kane counties. The governor said, quote, there is no easy fix for the effects of this virus on economy and or health, continuing, but we are Midwest tough. We have to manage through this until a cure or a vaccine is available. The new rules, as well as a limit on gatherings of up to 25 people, will go into effect on Friday, October 23rd. Pritzker had warned of these restrictions earlier and said at the time that he announced them that he had to act after rolling positivity rates in the region topped 8 percent for three days in a row. The governor said even higher rates in neighboring states like Wisconsin are now spilling over into Illinois and encouraged people to fight that by being careful, wearing masks, and keeping social distance of at least six feet when away from home. Pritzker said he focused on bars and restaurants because they're, quote, literally are piles of studies showing that such indoor venues are a prime location to spread the coronavirus. Social gatherings are also a major source, he said, which is why he's urged that the upcoming holidays be celebrated in a different fashion this year. The new restrictions will be lifted when average positivity rates hold at 6.5% or less for at least three days in a row. Such measures do work, Pritzker said, pointing to the Metro East region across from St. Louis that saw similar restrictions, but that reopened after the figures improved. An East Coast firm backed by a Middle Eastern real estate investor has agreed to pay close to $111 million for a fully leased office building next to Sterling Bay's Lincoln Yard site. Sources familiar with the property told Cranes. Philly-based investment manager Apex Capital 
is set to buy the more than 200,000 square foot property at 1515 Webster on behalf of the unidentified Middle Eastern Capital Partner, sources said. The building is home to the Chicago office of Minnesota-based third-party logistics firm C.H. Robinson, which signed a 15-year lease for the full building and moved there in 2018. And the property marks the second such local deal struck in recent weeks by Chicago-based developer Sterling Bay, which also has an agreement to sell the McDonald's Global Headquarters building in the Fulton market district to a high net worth family office based in the Pittsburgh area for around $430 million. And that deal followed German real estate firm Decca Immobilen's $86 million purchase in May of a 98,000 square foot building at 905 Fulton Market, the new headquarters of Mondelez International. But for Sterling Bay, the sale of the C.H. Robinson building could help set the bar for the value of office properties at Lincoln Yards, the $6 billion mega project that it's planning to build along the river between Lincoln Park and Bucktown. U.S. airfares fell by the most on record in the second quarter, further showing just how much the pandemic has impacted demand for flights. Average one-way ticket prices fell 26 percent from the same period last year to $151, including taxes and fees, according to 20 years of airfare figures compiled by Cerium, a travel industry data and analytics firm who also said that before now, the largest decline was 14 percent in late 2001, following the September 11th terrorist attacks. The lowest in Sirium's data was $149 in the fourth quarter of 2004 in nominal terms, but that would be about 203 in today's dollars. Airlines are also suffering the loss of business travelers who tend to purchase tickets closer to their travel date and pay more than people do who fly for leisure. Today, leisure travelers are trickling back into airports gradually with passenger volume on Sunday topping 1 million for the first time since March 16th. That according to screening data from TSA. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guests today, Todd Connor and Emily Drake. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.